Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick? I'm doing great. Yourself, Sarah? Not too bad. It's been really busy the last few weeks. It has been. It has been. And, and just so I can embarrass my colleague a little bit, in the last couple of weeks, I believe she attended a couple of important conferences and got recognized for some of her work. Is that correct? I did. I was at the APIC National Conference where I won um, one of the Blue Ribbon Awards for an abstract that we put together. Um, I am not going to take all the credit for it at all because it was definitely a team effort. Uh, but that was really fun. And that is where I met our guests today, actually. And then I was at the OSAP conference, um, which is like APIC for dental. So it's dental infection control. So presented an abstract there as well. And a lot of good came out of it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Great work on, by you and your colleagues on, on, on getting the award and everything else. Now, um, anything like interesting come out of either of those conferences besides getting to talk to Dr. Steinecker today? I learned so much stuff. Like, wait, I could talk for three hours and still not have talked about all the stuff that I learned. So I think that may be for another show. <laughs> that is terrific. And it's nice to actually, um, even though, and you know, I don't know about travel now and a lot of people coming back with COVID type stuff, but it's amazing how much more you can get out of conferences in person um, and how much we missed out on during the pandemic. It's been, it's been a tough deal. It is actually, that's a very good point because I never would have met Dr. Steinecker if we were all virtual because I was just eating lunch at APIC and he asked to sit next to me at the table and we started talking. So good things come from in-person conferences. We just have to be safe about it, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So we've already hinted today. We have Dr. Scott Steinecker on with us. He is the medical director of epidemiology and infection prevention at Parkview Regional Medical Center in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thanks for being on with us today, Dr. Steinecker. Well, thank you. Appreciate the invite. Yeah. So um, we had a chance to talk while we were eating lunch at APIC, and you had some really interesting things going on. And my little light bulb went off, and I said, we need to get you on to the podcast. So um, why don't you start with um, just giving people a little bit of insight into what your current role is right now? I started off in private practice in a nearby town, and I did private practice uh, infectious disease for about uh, oh, 14, 15 years. And then I decided, gee, um, I've seen 27,000 unique patients, as best <laughs> I could tell, and um, I really want to do something different to fix the system. So I applied around, talked to some folks, and Parkview's like, yeah yeah, we could take somebody like you. And um, I wanted to be the director of the infection prevention program. And they said, well, that's fine, but you have to do antibiotic stewardship. I said, no sweat. And along the way, I've picked up some clinical trials. I've picked up some informatics. And um, yeah, we just, uh, we do a lot of things. Yeah, how long ago did you make the transition from private practice? Your story sounds a lot like mine. About 10 years ago. Because if you'll remember, about 16 years ago, CMS came to our professional society meetings and said, our incentives are in disalignment, and we foresee that private practice specialty medicine is going to disappear. And mm -hmm. they were very bold and upfront about that. And I said, sure, I'll believe that when I see it. And, you know, six years later, I'm thinking about taking out a loan to pay myself because everything I earn working 80 plus hours a week is just going to pay the overhead. Yeah, it hadn't gotten quite that bad here, but I was in private practice starting in 2002 until December of 2018 when I closed my practice and then joined UNMC here as well. It's uh, 
different for sure. Um, you know, there's lots of advantages to being your own boss. There's obviously downsides, as you just said, because you've got to pay the bills. Um, and, you know, and, and, and work with uh, personnel things and everything else that maybe you don't have to when you work for a, a big system. So, um, well, that sounds awesome. I love fixing the system. And I sit at that nexus where I've got a foot in the docks, I've got a foot in leadership, I've got uh, a foot in laboratory, a foot in pharmacy. And it's just a matter of trying to bring all of those groups together and figure out a solution. Uh, get buy-in from everybody, and then it's usually pretty easy to get the implementation stuff done. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a niche that is somewhat unique for infectious disease, just given the way our roles were and are, are and being hospital-based. And, and if you're involved at all with infection prevention or um, stewardship, as you mentioned, or um, employee occupational health or anything like that, you're almost drawn to multiple different things that you have your fingers in that it's kind of exciting because you really do feel like you can make a difference in a lot of these things. As I have. It's been really delightfully rewarding. Uh, in fact, we've had some uh, uh, long-term care facilities that have reached out and said, we really need some help with our stewardship and some problems. And our hospital was agreeable to uh, have us sign a contract with uh, the hospital to provide my services and uh, my staff if necessary. Uh, but I go out once a month to these uh, facilities and then uh, help them with the various problems that they have, plus anything that comes up in between our, our standard meetings. That's great. That's kind of similar to our model at Nebraska ICAP. We, um, we don't go on site regularly like you do, but we have that assistance for those facilities and long-term care is involved in that. So have you done a lot with um, COVID response in those facilities or is it strictly antimicrobial stewardship? Oh, we've done so much. It's not just stewardship, it's infection prevention, but we've set up COVID units at uh, both of those facilities. And the one place we really spent a lot of effort because it's literally across the street from us. And uh, we, um, I, my job with the informatics is to forecast how big our peak is going to be, how tall the amplitude is going to be, and then how do we get patients transitioned out of the hospital as quickly as possible so we actually pre-rent rooms in their COVID unit so that we can get people out of our hospital and know that we have a pre-existing long-term care bed staffed by a team that's been uh, trained to be able to handle uh, COVID and the post-COVID patients until they're out of isolation. Um, so it's been a very good system and uh, they've, it's worked out very, very well. That's a great model. I'll have, yeah. I'm going to bring that idea back to the team. We need to pre-rent rooms. Yeah. I don't know if we have budget for that, but. I don't know either, <laughs> but uh, we don't have oh. much of a budget as you'll come to learn for our dirty drinks show. We haven't been able to take it on the road yet like we want to because of a budget constraint. <laughs> We did the return on investment and looked at what these patients cost us if they stay in-house and how quickly they burn through the DRG. And it just made a lot of sense for us to get them into long-term care and for us to pay the bill in long-term care until all the approvals went through. So yes, we send them directly out of here when we're ready and the patient's ready. And we don't really worry about the, the next level of insurance until um, you know, it eventually kicks in and then they go off of our dole and onto that dole. Very interesting. interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your community and your hospital? I get you got what is uh, Fort Wayne is in northeastern Indiana. Is that correct? Oh, right. We're just about an hour uh, uh, west of the Ohio border and we're about an hour and a half south of the Michigan border. And um, we occupy the 14 county area uh, extending up into Michigan and over into Ohio uh, with a, a, a town, Fort Wayne is the second largest town in Indiana at about 450,000. And we have almost a million, just over a million people in our service population. Uh, we have 10, soon to be 11 hospitals two main hospitals are in Fort Wayne proper, uh, and then the rest are our community hospitals varying in size from about 20 beds up to about 
60, 70 beds uh, scattered throughout our, our network. And we have about 13,000, just over 13,000 employees. And um, we have a 1,000, over a 1,000 providers now who are part of Parkview Physician Group. Uh, so pretty big operation, really. Yeah, it sounds like it pretty spread out. A um, little bigger than Lincoln in terms of town size, but your catchment area is, is about Omaha. We, we probably are a little over a million for our catchment area. So that's uh, interesting. So in, in that many hospitals and that far uh, away. So does ID and your group then cover all of those facilities, some of those facilities, some of them by a telehealth, or do you, you know, transfer in when people are sick kind of type situation? We have only, we're only able to staff and support the main hospitals, the two main hospitals in town. And so we have um, ID coverage there all the time. For the community hospitals, uh, then um, the, typically they'll just call me and they'll just do a buttonhole consult. And if we decide that it's bad enough, then they'll ship the patient down. Awesome. We have about 1,200 beds total though we've expanded up to 1,500 uh, 1, beds, and we just created 300 beds in waiting rooms, conference rooms, hallways, and whatnot uh, at the height of COVID. Awesome. So you said that you started off in um, private practice, but before that, did you always know you wanted to go into medicine? My dad was a family practice doc. And I just always had had my eye on that. It kept me, gave me a, a goal ever since I was in school. I, I never had to really wonder what I was going to do. I always had incentive to do well in all my classes. And all the way through uh, high school up into uh, college, you know, that was always my goal. Uh, because my dad had done family practice and, and literally we had patients driving up to our house on a fairly <laughs> regular basis. We were always answering the phone for dad and yelling at him when he was on the tractor, that kind of thing. <laughs> so I, I felt like I had done family practice for 18 years of my life. So I really wanted to do something different, which is why I decided to specialize in infectious disease. Very cool. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, Wapakoneta, Ohio, uh, Wapakoneta, Neil Armstrong, Ohio. first man on the moon location, uh, just south of Lima, Ohio, which is where I came back to practice uh, most of those uh, 15 years. Little known fact, my grandfather was actually born in Lima, Ohio. I'll be darned. <laughs> I've actually heard of it. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small world, isn't it? At the end of the day, it really is. <laughs> I've never been there, but, uh, you know, <laughs> not much reason unless you got family to visit. Yeah. That's what they say about Omaha. <laughs> I think they say that about every small town everywhere. <laughs> Some are better than others though. I will say that. Um, so as we were chatting at APIC over lunch, um, you were talking a little bit about the um, MPH and IP program, training program that you developed. So I wanted, and you presented on this at APIC as well. So I wanted you to um, maybe talk a little bit about that, why you developed it and um, some of the key components, if you could. Over the past 10 years uh, for the first six or seven, um, I was in charge of the department and that included the hiring and the firing and coming up with the people who were, um, who were going to come into the department. Initially, we grew from about six people, and we're now up to 25 people. So we've had some pretty rapid growth during that time. When we started, it was pretty easy to find nurses or med techs along the way that were interested in joining our department. Um, over the past uh, few years, however, it's gotten worse. Uh, it's gotten to the point where 65 to 70% of our applications that we receive uh, that make it through our screening process that's done by our hiring department uh, are from MPH students. And so clearly there's this huge need and desire in that community to join infection prevention. By the same token, we're getting so few applicants from nursing, it's very difficult to pull them away with incentive pay and all of those things. Same thing with laboratory. 
And if I pull from nursing and laboratory, then those departments have to then back train somebody to fill that position that I just pilfered their employee. So um, the idea of creating a, a novel stream that would not pirate from our existing staff was really attractive. And I've been working on this idea now for about four to five years. And um, we finally got to the point where my hospital system said, look, we're going to fund this for the next five years, because I said, it's going to cost, it's going to, because we have to hire these uh, MPH students as they're going through, they have to be employees, right? We can't teach them EPIC, and we can't teach them the Bugsy module. Um, so by hiring them, we get through that hurdle, plus they have to be in the program for two years as a part-timer because they're part-time during the school year, full-time during the summer, uh, but they have to have those two years in order to sit for their certification and in infection prevention. The big payout is in, uh, when right now they leave their MPH and they maybe go into the public health department or something, it's like, what, $35,000, $45,000? Minimum start for an IP today is 75, and often it's 80 to 120,000, depending on the state, with uh, Florida, Texas, uh, California really leading that, uh, that 120K starting salary if you've passed your CIC. So that's the big hurdle. That is an awesome program. Um, I am interested how many of those uh, students that you put through that program stay on as an IP with you in your system? Ah, great way to ask that question. Think of this program as a program in evolution. So if about five to six years ago, I realized that I had a bunch of IPs or new IPs that didn't know the why behind the stuff we did. So I started off with policies or, or things, and I do tons of content creation in terms of lecture preparation for our, our um, medical students, for residence programs, for uh, nurses and other departments, for physician groups, whatever, whoever needs me to talk about something, I'll create something and, and, and tell them. So I had a lot of stuff already in, a, uh, you know, already developed. And I started to just hold a two-hour meeting twice a month and said, okay, the first hour is a didactic lecture on something that I find or that, that everybody's interested in uh, uh, or that is going to fill in some gaps that you may have. Then the second hour, we're going to go through the APEC uh, practice text uh, through the practice book. And we're just going to go through the questions and I'm going to explain why I like the question or why I hate the question and why I hate the answers and why the answer is wrong or why the answer is right. Um, but uh, just go through and, and really talk out, talk it out so that they got to really hear sort of the different sides of, of what that question might be getting at. And that really was popular. Uh, so we advanced. We then created a formal program. This was now for nurses and for, um, for uh, med techs primarily. Um, and we started to actually hire people that also had MPH degrees. One of my employees started off, he came to me as an MPH, made it through the screening, made it to the point of actually having an interview. It's like, you know, I'm really sorry, Adam. You, you're, you're a high quality guy. You're, it's just going to be too high a hurdle to train you up on all the systems you need to know and teach you like the vernacular of medicine, uh, what you need to know to exist in the hospital. Um, so he's said, okay. And what he did was he went and got a nursing degree. And then he worked at one of our hospitals for six months. When we posted our next opening, he said, now will you take me? We said, of course, you now know Epic, you know, you know, a ton. So it came from, well, okay, why should a guy go through his MPH program, then have to turn around and do another degree in order to get the job that he had planned to do? And with his help and what I had hired now in a, 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 a co-director of infection prevention, and uh, she was an MPH. Uh, out of out of Detroit, 
and so I now had a co-director for infection prevention that was an MPH. I now had uh, about five other people who were MPH degrees. And it's like, okay, guys, we, we need to look at this new new. Uh, income, this new stream of, of people coming in, and how can we how can we start to cut back these barriers? So we had this formalized program already for our nurses and med techs, and it was an onboarding to get them through all the system. Um, so it became a pretty low hurdle and and an easier sell to say, well, we got all this stuff built. Um, all we have to really do is to teach people the language of the hospital. Like, what's a Foley catheter? Well, you got to go back to the beginning and say, here's a Foley catheter. See the little balloon on the end. This is how this works. So we have to start to think in, in a simpler term. And I have to correct. I have to constantly uh, work with myself to say, are they going to know these terms? And do I have to really define? Uh, and I'm starting to define at the beginning of my slide presentations all the key terms that I'm going to use in there so that people can start to develop the vocabulary and understand all the acronyms and abbreviations and terms that we use, because otherwise they're just not going to know. But I have to, outside of taking it that next step down, as we talked with the universities that uh, uh, provide the MPH programs, and they provide both uh, Indiana University and Purdue have uh, you, you can do the whole thing electronically, the whole thing on your computer. So they can be physically here and still get a degree from IU or Purdue. IU in particular has been the first out of the gate to say, oh, oh, this is really cool. We don't have anything that teaches hospital infection prevention. Can you go up to the, the 250 foot level or the 500 foot level and then teach a three hour, two semester course on hospital infection prevention for all of our MHA and all of our MPH students, even the ones that, you know, because we only take two students at a time through this more intensive program. Uh, they won't get trained on Bugsy. They won't get the clinical experience, but they're going to get at least a good taste of what's the rest of it. And so that's expected to start this fall. Now, to answer your question directly, we've had now four people or so that have been MPHs that have gone through our program. And um, we have another one starting this month or in July, uh, who is an MPH who has graduated, but she's trying to gain that clinical experience has interned with us over the summers. And she's like, you know, she's a quality smart person and she's spent enough time that she's, that it's not going to be a too high a burden to get her trained up. So we decided to go ahead and hire her uh, again, trying to keep from stealing everybody else's staff. That's great. I think you're doing something very awesome as a non-traditional IP myself, I have a dental background. Um, I think that looking for those novel streams of, of people that are really interested, MPH students are really interested in this kind of stuff. And I think they're motivated to be able to go through these programs. Um, I think that we need to get the word out. There are other people that are interested that are not just RNs, not I don't mean it like that. You're not just an RN. You're very valuable to the team, but <laughs> you don't have to be an RN to be an effective IP. So one of the things great. I discovered at APEC that was somewhat revealing to me, um, I was talking about this program that we had developed for our nurses, our onboarding program, which is about six months long now. And we actually have a dedicated 0.7 FTE uh, uh, experienced IP who is, is teaching all of our folks that we're taking through this training program. Uh, but that in and of itself is so hugely valuable. It's so much better to go this way and have a planned introduction to infection prevention instead of being held out the NHSN manual here. You go to a conference room and you better learn this. I mean, that's a horrible way. Yet I had people at the conference say, that's how I started at a major university that everybody would recognize. That's how I had to start. And when I brought that story back here, my co-director said, oh, that's what happened to me up at Detroit. <laughs> it's like, 
oh my gosh, we've got to fix this. So I'm meeting with my intellectual property folks next week, and uh, we're going to get uh, um, get this copyrighted so that we can then start to share that out. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, you said that Indiana reached out to you and everything else. I mean, it sounds like you've come up with a very effective way to reach uh, people and educate people that probably needs to uh, be distributed a little bit more broadly. I don't know how do you have enough time in the day to do all this stuff, but I mean, it, it seems like it's a, a great plan. Well, it's even better because we're going to, we're starting our first 23 people and we'll eventually uh, new residents in a, in a residency program in surgery and internal medicine and OBGYN and emergency medicine. Uh, we are going to continue to expand and expect to have somewhere between 75 and 125 residents at a time uh, rotating through uh, Parkview, uh, through our own Parkview program, in addition to the uh, family practice program that's downtown. They're also going to benefit from this training. Our EVS uh, is really interested in at least some of the modules of this training. And then our med tech program is interested in some of the modules that we're, we're creating. So we thought, um, how many places can I be? And how many times can I, how many places at one time? We're going to, we've been exploring at this point, putting all of this on an on-demand session on Coursera. And if we have all of this on Coursera, that would mean that there at University of, of Nebraska, you could hire your MPH, do the at the bedside training, uh, do the clinical training, do the at the bedside electronic medical record training. You can have them take all of these courses that we have and as they pass the, the they go through the module and they take the quiz then they would parkview would issue them a certificate uh, that would say they've completed it and so not only would they be learning and they'd have somebody to talk to there on site who would be their you know their their buddy their partner their trainer but they would also get all of this other stuff that would free up your staff from needing to do that training at a price cheaper than sending them to a week-long conference and that way we can train people all over the country through this module. Uh, we can have it on demand for long-term care and they can pick the um, units that are relevant to them. Uh, and then for each one that they pass, they get a certificate of completion, which then when the surveyors show up, what education do you have? Well, right here, I have my certificate of completion from Parkview for these modules. Beautiful. That's very cool. I think that every MPH program should have a course in infection prevention. I'm just throwing that out there. I wish I, I would have had agree. a course during my MPH degree. Um, my first exposure to infection prevention was through um, a really good friend, Peg Lubert, who is amazing. Um, and I just always thought, man, she has the coolest job. How do I do that? <laughs> And I got lucky, so here I am. But I think more formal education for infection prevention outside of the nursing realm would be a great asset to the profession overall. You're doing very great things, sir. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so we applied for the CDC grant uh, with the idea that if we got funded, uh, if we get funded, then uh, we can start to develop modules uh, to, to further enhance the EPIC training, because right now the training on Bugsy is, leaves a little to be desired. So um, I thought my thought was, well, let's create some standardized modules uh, for each area of the NHSN reporting. And we can have our folks go through those each year. And... Um, have have a commonality. So if you're at my community hospital and you don't enter VAEs and VAPs, um, you can take the module and remain competent at entry of data into NHSN because you've passed your, I don't know, six or 10 standardized cases that we've developed uh, with the CDC uh, that would, you know, fit in uh, to the same kind of reporting process that you would have through Bugsy. It's just that it would be a standardized module. It wouldn't go on to be reported, obviously. 
but uh, that would be a great way to keep everybody um, uh, up to uh, standard with a standardized competency. Because when you think about it, what is our competency model now? The surveyor shows up and says, what conferences have you attended? <laughs> what training have you had? It's really pretty woeful. And at some of these smaller hospitals, there isn't anybody smarter to be able to say that these people actually know how to enter the data into NHSN unless they get audited and then you're in the doghouse if it doesn't match up. So it'd be great to be able to do something up front. So I think that's something I, I'm very interested in pursuing and I've been talking with the Epic Development folks at uh, Verona about that. That's very cool. Yeah, sounds pretty remarkable. Again, I don't know how you have time to do this. I'm looking at all the other things that you do and what you talk about, and it's, uh, you must not sleep. We know a few people like that, don't we? <laughs> we do. <laughs> we do. We've been, that's one thing that's been good about this podcast, and we've been able to talk to some really extraordinary people. Absolutely. So another thing that we had talked about at the 8-Bit conference that I honestly know nothing about, and I'm super interested about, um, was that you were working on a project with fecal transplants. Was that correct? Like most good stories, this one begins with a beer. <laughs> so Those are the best, yes. I was at IDSA, and we were in Chicago, uh, and the big thing that year was that we were going to see the exhibition of Sioux, uh, the Tyrannosaurus Rex. And so IDSA had rented out the floor uh, and um, had hors d'oeuvres and, and, you know, beverages and whatnot. So I hooked up with some friends and, and one pr particular friend, uh, Johan Bakken. Hey, Johan, what you doing? It's like, well, I'm just about to be published. I had all these people with uh, stool uh, with uh, um, uh, C. diff, and I couldn't fix them. And I was reading in my uh, my Norwegian literature about these folks that had done stool transplants. So we did some, and they worked. And uh, um, that was then the precursor for the publication that he eventually had come out in CID about stool transplants. And so the usual jokes about poop smoothies and so on ensued, and we had some fun with that. But uh, as I got home, I'm thinking, gee, you know, I've got this large, large cohort of people that have had C. diff and are miserable. I've got a college-age kid who had to drop out of school uh, I've got a family that had to mortgage their house to pay for vancomycin, and they none of these folks get well with the treatments that I have available. Maybe this isn't such a bad idea. So I wrote up a procedure, I attached the article to it, and I said, yeah, I'd like to do this, and I got approval from my hospital to do it. And so I started to do it in the outpatient department. And at the time, the big deal was nobody wanted to have the blender. So it was like, who, what, what do I do with a blender? So I ended up just using a tongue depressor and a urine cup and just sort of beat it and then drink, screen it and put it in a fleet cinema bottle. And surprisingly, that worked really well. And we've got more sophisticated over time, started doing it uh, with, um, with uh, uh, the gastrographin enema um, bottles, which have the three lumens. Uh, rule number one, keep poo off the shoe. Uh, <laughs> when you have that three lumens, you've got the one with the cork, that's good. The one where the stool is gonna go down, but then there's the extra one. You gotta tie a knot in the blue line or you end up violating rule number one. So we, uh, we did this and we started to have huge success. I shared it with the folks up in Cleveland Clinic at Ohio State and they're like, finally, somebody's doing that. Our lawyers won't let us do it. Can we send our patients to you? So for a time, I was getting patients out of Pennsylvania and Cleveland and Michigan and Indiana and, and Kentucky, uh, Tennessee, uh, I mean, it was just incredible. These people would come to a Cleveland Clinic or Ohio State, and then they'd be sent to Lima, Ohio to get their poop transplant. But yep, we, we 
did that on the regular with uh, excellent success. And uh, then when I came over here to Parkview, uh, I was supervising that on top of things, eventually got a nurse practitioner trained and she's been doing them. And then we started looking at some of the studies and the most recent one that we're doing now is a rebiotics punch study. So if you can imagine uh, taking, uh, uh, you may have heard about RoboGut back in the day up in Toronto. What they did was they, they took a person whose stool was pristine. She had never been on antibiotics. And they got rid of all the gram positives and they got rid of some of the gram negatives and they were left with this stuff that they couldn't culture, uh, but they could ferment. And so they'd have to every day feed RoboGut and every day take something out of RoboGut. And with that, they then whenever they needed to do a stool transplant, they just take off an aliquot and it worked great. Well, other companies have been really moving there, trying to figure out how to ferment or grow something that would be FDA approvable and wasn't <laughs> going to cost $10,000 like those encapsulated pills were costing at the time. Um, and then we had the Open Biome Project, which is subsequently shut down. And now one of the new replacements is the rebiotics. And they've moved from, uh, from like the old enema format that we'd been used to, uh, but they've all now moved into a, a lyophilized pill uh, so that we can now move into just treating people with pills for their stool replacement. And I found this to be a really interesting disease because most of the time people with real C. diff are going to be depressed and they're going to be losing weight regardless of how much food they take in. There's something missing that they need in a bad, bad way. And also half the time, the disease, even if you have negative for C. diff, the problem is they started off with 1,600 different kinds of bacteria. And then Johan and others have shown that that drops to about 800 kinds of bacteria. And the ones that go missing are the ones that are responsible uh, that either prevent you from being depressed or make you happy and make you absorb food and don't know that complex interplay, but there's something really super interesting going on in that space. But when I treat people, uh, particularly elderly, they've been at a long-term care facility and they're just sort of wasting away, it is miraculous how quickly they get better with a single stool transplant. And I've got about a cure rate of about 80% with just doing one. And if you fail that, then I'll do number two and number three as close to back to back as I can. And with all of that, I have something like a 96% cure rate. Uh, but you know that that field continues to advance. And I think the other super fascinating thing that hasn't been fully explored is that if you take a skinny person and you give them fat poop, they become fat. And if you give a fat person skinny poop, at least for a time, they become thinner. And I think there's a lot more to be done in that sphere, but I just haven't had a time or chance to really move that direction. But I think there's a lot, lot to be learned yet in this field. Yeah, That's definitely. Yeah, that's that's pretty remarkable. I mean, certainly stool transplants have moved up in our priority list when we're treating somebody with C. diff. I remember, you know, when they first were out, like you said, you know, it was all jokes and are, are we really doing this and everything else? And then it became, all right, well, I've given them, you know, oral vancomycin for however knows how long and they're still not any better or they every time I try to get them off of it it comes right back or, or something like that so then we try now it's like we give them 10 days of oral vancomycin and if they don't respond then we look to give them a stool transplant it's amazing how that transition has happened in about a decade it costs us about $256 or so I think is what Medicare reimburses for a stool transplant okay, 256 bucks versus um, 1,500 for course of ink, 3,000 for a course of deficit. My gosh. I mean, and a cure rate is dramatically high. Yeah, way better. 
way better. I agree. Where are you guys getting your stool from now? Did you, uh, you know, the, the days of telling them how to blend it and run it through a coffee filter and everything else uh, that, uh, you know, I was worried we'd be going back to that with COVID, you know, because essentially this is an industry that shut down with COVID because they were concerned that we were going to give people a bunch of COVID by giving them other people's poop. So we've been really blessed to have the rebiotics punch study going during this time. And that's our first go-to. If for some reason they can't um, do that, uh, and we've had some people that just screen out, that they, for instance, they, they're demented and they can't keep a stool diary or something of that nature, then we'll go back to the old-fashioned way and we identify, uh, we ask them who, which relative is willing and able to do it. And then we screen the relative and we screen them now for, for COVID. Uh, we have not really been screening them for ESBLs and things of that nature. Uh, usually their uh, spouse or some other first degree relative. Um, and we do check them now for COVID just to make sure they don't have active COVID at the time that they're uh, donating. But then otherwise we take that and we found that if you get Osterizer makes a smoothie blender that it's $15 for the the uh, bottle and then the blender blades are included and and they're in the top uh, and you just turn it upside down put it on a blender you blenderize it the blender stays clean but you can throw away the $15 uh, blender blades and top uh, combo uh, that go on top of the of the bottle and then we just pour that in the enema bag and again we use that ct gastrograph and uh, three channel bag and tie off the blue one or violate rule number one um, <laughs> but uh, that works really really well and people you don't have to worry quite as much about them holding it in we've tried that and we offer that to everybody but most people prefer the comfort of having a stopper mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i know a lot of places are still doing them with colonoscopies did you guys start out that way before you discovered this three-way enema thing or did you just come up with this and just say we're doing it this way I've done about half a dozen uh, or less by colonoscopy, and they always ask me to come in. You get paid for either the colonoscopy or for the fecal transplant, and the fecal transplant only pays $256 by Medicare. So um, it's there's been a huge decrease in enthusiasm from GI to do that. So they'll actually just ask me to be there and, and do my piece, and um, that way they can still bill for their now therapeutic colonoscopy which as you know is like three to five grand uh so that's a way to make that really expensive yeah very interesting i now know more than i did about stool transplants <laughs> started with a beer that's right that's right so um are you currently reading or binge watching anything? You know, we were binge watching a bit, but um, uh, really after the amazing Miss Mosel sort of petered out, um, I haven't really done uh, near as much of that. I've got a few things that I've tried to get into, uh, but quite honestly, I just don't have a ton of time. We do live on a lake, and so our evening is often supper's finished, um, grab a bottle of wine, go out on the pontoon boat, and then cruise the lake until the stars come out, and then go back and dock and go to bed. So that is an amazingly fun thing to do. Um, maybe swim along the way if, if we're hot. Um, sometimes I'll go fishing, uh, but um, we sure like taking that cruise in the, in the evening. That sounds way more fun than watching TV. Yeah, that sounds pretty remarkable. That's terrific. Maybe I should get a pontoon boat. <laughs> <laughs> How big is the lake? It's about 690 acres. Oh, that's pretty uh, good so size. Pretty good size. It's uh, probably the fourth largest in Indiana. And uh, uh, when you get about half hour north of Fort Wayne, uh, there literally are thousands of lakes. Uh, some all different sizes. Some are very small, but there's quite a few large ones. Is that up in that area where they have the dunes and stuff that I hear are pretty interesting, or is that further to the west? Uh, that's 
if you pretty much go straight north, you'd be up around Grand Rapids. And then you head over towards, I think it's Sagatuck, which is about another 40 minutes to the west. And you'd be into the dunes area from Michigan City, which is actually in Indiana, uh, extending up uh, the coast of Michigan, uh, Lake Michigan. I, I hear that that's just pretty cool terrain and everything else. It is. Very awesome. Well, we've tortured you for the last 45 minutes. Do you have any questions for us? I do. I do. As you have been training and done such an excellent job training long-term care folks for, for now years, uh, I'm really curious as to what are the biggest challenges that you found? What are, what are the biggest knowledge gaps with an IP and long-term care coming into the system? Ooh, that is a really good question. Um, I think one of our biggest challenges that continues to be one of our biggest challenges is just the turnover rate right now in long-term care, especially in that IP position. So, you know, you get somebody in and you get them trained and rolling and they finally know what to do. And then we get a new person in who maybe is coming from a different setting or does it have any long-term care experience? And so then we have to start over with that person. Um, I think that's really been the biggest challenge with working all the working with all of the long-term care facilities that we do right now. Um, I think that my team, I am definitely not the long-term care specialist. My team is amazing. We have some great standardized tools that we um, give to all of our facilities anytime they have a new outbreak or they need those tools. And then we're also offering a uh, weekly long-term care webinar. So we go over any hot topics um, that the IPs get calls about over the week um, and any COVID updates or CMS updates. Um, we've been really lucky to have partnered with state licensure so we have a representative from state licensure on the call. So he's able to clarify a lot of the CMS questions that we get and, and regulatory questions. Um, but I think it's been a really good partnership throughout the state. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the they do a lot of mentoring as well. So, I mean, they'll talk to people, you know, anytime they want to call. But I think some of the hard part is, is that, you feel like you're making some progress. And then as Sarah said, there's turnover. The other problem is, is that they wear many hats within their facility. And so for them to just set apart dedicated time and just do infection prevention kind of comes far and few between. So a lot of times it's, you know, just in time stuff or, you know, I'm going to go put out this fire um, as opposed to really doing, you know, infection prevention and really getting into it outside of the stuff that's absolutely regulated, if that makes sense. Very interesting. Um, one source advantage that I have is that we just recently hired as a data analyst, somebody that had previously been uh, the, uh, well, chief uh, or CEO or president of, the, uh, of a long-term care facility decided that she'd had enough of that and wanted to step down and go to something that would give her more time to be with her kids. Uh, and we allow her to work remotely as well. But uh, I just really think I need to pick her brains and try to figure out, since we've standardized a training program for our IPs, what can we do for long-term care? Because you're right, that turnover is in part because they don't feel comfortable that they know what to do. And they don't have any resources or mentors, uh, which I think is so very important. And we need to get them a sense the, of, of feeling confident um, that they know what to do. And I think that some kind of a more standardized onboarding would really help that. And we have the similar problem in um, critical access hospitals. It's kind of a same type of situation. And I, I think a lot of it is, is if they can feel supported and feel like they can make progress and learn, I think that's going to help a ton, which is a large portion of what ICAP is trying to do is, is, is trying to be their, their ally and their mentor and uh, their educator uh, throughout time so that hopefully we can get people to really learn a lot, know what they're doing. And I think if they feel comfortable with what they're doing and know they have support, there's a decent chance they might stay. 
Certainly agree. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think having that setting specific support is important as well because long-term care is a very different setting than a critical access hospital or, um, you know, an ASC clinic or a dental facility. We have a dental IP support program as well. So just having somebody that you know you can trust with those questions who is not regulatory, who's not going to come down on you and say, you know, point, wag their finger, you're doing this wrong, <laughs> um, but be there to support and provide tools and resources that you need. That's really important, um, especially with the um, the state of everything we have going on right now with the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> it's been extra stressful. Um, has your IP department been working uh, or addressing the changes in the Joint Commission stewardship? Uh, they're not huge changes necessarily, but uh, I really think that it's going to take some specific effort to meet the new newer standards. I know nothing about the Joint Commission standards. That is not my wheelhouse. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. And I'm not that involved in the stewardship, so I, I don't know. That's a great question. Okay. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you figure it out, you let us know. <laughs> oh, it really comes back. It's somewhat similar with our IP, too. How do we get the information back to the docs to let them know um, that, you know, that diagnosis of bilateral cellulitis and the lady with huge ulcerations on her legs with, you know, a normal white count, and no fever. Well, yeah, that, that wasn't cellulitis and those antibiotics weren't needed. Um, we have to have a way to safely get that back to them beyond just my email or, or text message. Yeah, I agree. I mean, agree. It's, uh, I don't know. Again, I'm not working completely on that, but we have a bunch of people that do. And I think you've worked with Dr. Van on some other stuff before. So he's kind of our guru as far as the physician goes for antimicrobial stewardship. So um, I'm sure he probably has a, some kind of a plan. I just haven't had a chance to ask him. <laughs> well, if he doesn't know about it, you can scoop him because it's pretty new. There you go. Only the newest information on this podcast. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Steinecker. We really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, it was great to talk to you. Enjoy uh, tooling around in your uh, boat tonight. That sounds amazing, honestly. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. And for all of our listeners out there, thanks for joining us for this episode of Dirty Drinks. And we will catch you next time. Bye, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.